0: Hi, we'd like to tell you about a new free ebook that Value Capture has published. It's available now. It's titled Leadership, Learning, and the Power of Perfect Selected Insights from the Habitual Excellence Podcast. The book includes quotes from Paul O'Neill Sr., as well as guests from the first 25 episodes of this podcast series, Habitual Excellence. You can learn more and you can download the ebook today at www.ValueCaptureLLC.com slash perfect one. Hi, this is Mark Raven from Value Capture. And today I'm sharing an interview that I did with Paul O'Neill Sr. back in the summer of 2011. Uh, Mr. O'Neill was, of course, the um, the first non-executive chair of Value Capture, and he was in that role up until his passing in early 2020. Um, in, in this episode, originally published in my Lean Blog, Interviews Podcast, we talk about workplace safety. We talk about patient safety and, and leadership and his thoughts and experiences, both as a leader himself and as somebody who is helping influence uh, other leaders in healthcare at that time, many of those leaders you've heard interviewed in this series. So um, I hope you enjoy uh, this look back, this listen back everything he shared back then was very much ahead of the curve and very much relevant here in 2022. So again, here's that audio, uh, my interview of Paul O'Neill Sr. from 2011. To learn more about value capture, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com. Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Welcome to episode 124 of my podcast for June 20th, 2011. This episode is produced in partnership with the Healthcare Value Network. I have a very special guest today. He is Paul O'Neill. He served as the 72nd Secretary of the U.S. Treasury from 2001 to 2002. and is also very well known for having served as Chairman and CEO of Alcoa from 1987 to 1999, retiring as Chairman at the end of 2000. And in leading Alcoa, they became the safest workplace in the world, while also increasing their market cap by more than 800%. And today, Alcoa operates across more than 40 countries at a lost workday rate that is 20 times lower than the average rate for American hospitals. Now, Paul O'Neill is currently chairman of Value Capture LLC, where he provides counsel and support to healthcare executives and policymakers who share his conviction that the value of healthcare operations can be increased by 50% or more through the pursuit of perfect safety and clinical outcomes. Paul O'Neill serves as a board member at the National Quality Forum, the RAND Corporation, and more than a dozen other major corporations and nonprofit organizations. So for more information, you can go to leanblog.org slash 124. For past episodes, you can go to www.leanpodcast.org. Thanks for listening.
1: Uh, Mr. O'Neill, thank you for taking time to talk. My pleasure. Uh, I was wondering if you could start by telling, uh, you know, some of the listeners might not be familiar with um, your transition from your role as CEO of Alcoa and, and the great work that was done there on the employee safety front and how that translated into healthcare. Can you tell
2: the listeners um, about that part of your background? In fact, I've been uh, interested in uh, health and medical care issues for a very long time, uh, when I first went to work for the federal government in 1961, uh, it was in a position as a management intern at the Veterans Administration, and I was hired uh, specifically to bring and apply ideas of operations research to the uh, variety of things the Veterans, Veterans Administration was doing, including insurance programs and compensation and benefit programs, and, of course, at that time, uh, delivering health medical care through 212 uh, different VA hospitals around the country. And uh, subsequent to that, I was uh, recruited to go into what was then the Bureau of the Budget and turned into the Office of Management and Budget, where I had principal responsibilities in my early days there for advising the director and the president on issues of uh, health and medical care. And this is r- right after Medicare and Medicaid were enacted. Uh, and so I've had a really long engagement and involvement with uh, health medical care issues. And then, as you say, I was, uh, after I left the government in 19, early 1977, uh, became eventually the president of International Paper Company and then the CEO of Alcoa. And I had the different sets of responsibilities for dealing with uh, health medical care issues. And so I, I've never lost my interest and involvement one way or another another in the health medical care issues. And, in fact, while I was still the uh, chairman and CEO of Alcoa in 1997, uh, I was asked to be a co-founder of something called the Pittsburgh Regional Healthcare Initiative. And, uh, I, I accepted that uh, responsibility because I, I, believed that it was possible as, it, as I found it was possible at Alcoa, uh, with an articulation of the right set of, of values to help organizations to accomplish a level of of performance that (laughs) most people would have said uh, was impossible. Um, And those ideas began with something that I initiated on the day that I went to Alcoa out of my earlier experiences at International Paper and working in the federal government, which was to announce... um, that it should be and would be our goal at Alcoa to create a workplace, uh, which ultimately turned out to involve 140,000 people in 43 countries, to create an understanding and a goal of achieving zero injuries to people who did the work all over the world. And uh, when I... When I initiated this uh, idea for Alcoa, we were already uh, in the top one-third of companies in the United States in terms of avoiding injuries to people. And uh, over a period of a few years, in in fact, uh, even today, if you were to go on the Internet and uh, type in Alcoa, and on the upper left-hand corner of their webpage, uh, select the health and safety uh, data bar, uh, you would find that Alcoa's injury rate uh, to people who work for the company around the world is lower by 30 times than the injury rate to people who work in the United States in health medical care facilities. And I believe then, uh, and I continue to believe, That with the right leadership and, um, and and, uh, characterization of organizational objectives of what I call the theoretical limit, not, not only is it possible to achieve worker safety in health and medical care that's 30 times better than it is today, but those same principles of continue, of first of all, setting goals at the theoretical limit, which means zero. Is the number of injuries that occur ought to occur in a great organization, not only to the workforce, but to, in the case of health medical care, to the patients that are being served. And um, so, I've been at that for quite a while.
1: Now, um, can you talk about some of the early work within um, within Pittsburgh? I'm um, working with Dr. Richard Shannon and Allegheny General Hospital. Looking at reducing infections for patients, Um, it it sounds like maybe it's human nature of people looking at a goal like zero, whether it was in industry or healthcare, and saying that's not possible. Um, Can you talk a little bit about some of the work um, that that was done there, and maybe also touch on the point of how do you have a goal of zero be motivating as opposed to um, maybe somehow seeming discouraging to people if that's a goal that they think that
2: can't be reached? Okay, good. Um, you know, it's worth uh, telling a little bit about how R- Dr. Richard Shannon came to be interested. Uh, I thought when I was at Alcoa that we should share our expertise in, um, in, in achieving remarkable levels of performance uh, with the community. And so we created something called the Alcoa University, and, and uh, Dr. Shannon came to one of our university sessions and he was so intrigued with the idea of applying ideas of continuous learning and continuous improvement with an established goal at zero injuries to people, to patients, uh, that after he went to our university, he set out to import these ideas into his work at the Allegheny Medical Center, where he had a responsibility for three intensive care wards. And uh, when he began this work, the in the year before they started, they had—I remember—1,754 patients went through the three units. Uh, Thirty-nine of them uh, got an infection uh, during the process of their care, and 19 of them died. And so, Dr. Shannon uh, began working with all the people who were involved in. The delivery of care, to uh, to observe how they were doing the care, and to come to agreement with the people who are delivering the care—nurses and doctors and technicians and people who clean the rooms—on how they would do the work, and they would all do it the same way every day, so that if there was an infection they could more easily understand what had caused a person to get an infection. And over a, over a period of about 18 months, uh, as they implemented these ideas, uh, they began to make progress. And, and at the end of that 18-month period, they began uh, measuring how they were doing and uh, keeping track so that in the subsequent measurement period, of twelve months, they had over eighteen hundred and fifty patients. That is to say, a hundred more patients uh, during the course of a year. They had one infection instead of thirty-nine, and no one died. And you know, his results were very consistent with my own uh, experience at Alcoa. That when we got people to uh, practice good ideas. And to learn from every instance of anything going wrong, that the process, whatever it was, got better and better and better. And so even today, you know, I've been out of Alcoa now for 11 and a half years. If you look at their website, they've maintained the safety culture, and the the, um, the injury rate at Alcoa continues to be 30 times better than the national average. In all industries, including health medical care, and it, th- that great success you know, from
1: Allegheny um, is, is being duplicated by um, Dr. Shannon now that he's in um, Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania, um, and it, it's 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 proving repeatable. Um, you know, similar methods that he used through um, you know being promoted as as checklists by. Um, Atul Gawande and the World Health Organization and others, this this certainly seems eminently um, repeatable. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, uh, Mr. O'Neill, on um, your perspective on the spread of of these methods and and these results through healthcare. Um, It seems like if this this has been so well-proven and and the the results are so dramatic that you would hope everybody would would rush um, to try to duplicate those results in their own organization. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are um, on, on the pace
2: of, of uh, the spread of these ideas and methods. Well, I think you probably know in the last six months or so, there have been a couple of studies done, uh, one in North Carolina and uh, another sponsored by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. <laughs> and what they've concluded is that since 1999, when the Institute of Medicine famous study was published called Two Eras Human, uh, we've accomplished practic- on a national basis practically nothing in terms of reducing things gone wrong in the delivery of health medical care. Uh, it's mm-hmm. true, as you say, that uh, Dr. Shannon approved the case in uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, He's proving it again at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And the ThetaCare uh, medical system in Wisconsin is uh, producing the same kind of results. Uh, Gary Kaplan at the Mm -hmm. Virginia Mason Clinic in Seattle, Washington, is producing similar reports. And there are a few other places around the country, but the tragedy is, As straightforward as these ideas are, leadership in health and medical care institutions around the country have not grabbed these ideas and implemented them, which is frankly unbelievable when it's so clear that the benefits uh, are, are not only to significantly better outcomes for health medical care, but significant cost reductions at the same time. And so I, I believe, having observed the practice of caregiving around the country in a lot of different venues, that if we could get these ideas practiced every day in every caregiving institution in the United States, We could have an enormous improvement in outcomes for patients, and we could save a trillion dollars a year out of the current $2.7 trillion we're spending on health and medical care, and that would be unbelievably positive for our society.
1: So what what do you think... um is getting in the way of um, the more rapid adoption
2: of of these methods and if the benefits are so clear. You know, I I honestly think the greatest skill shortage in our society, maybe in the world, of uh, civilized people is real leadership. You know, there are a whole lot of people who I suppose are leaders by designation, but I don't honestly know a lot of people who are leaders in the sense that they will articulate goals at what I call the theoretical limit and then help their people to acquire and practice the skills that are necessary to what I call habitual excellence. Hmm. You know, if you look around the health medical care environment in the United States, You can find endless examples of projects where people have worked on some small part of the opportunity, but it's really hard to find people in leadership positions who understand the idea of habitual excellence, which means everything should be a leader should expect every aspect of his organization to perform at the known level of possibility. And, uh, you know, having that kind of leadership and, and a leadership that is not about punishing or blaming people, but about using every single instance of anything gone wrong as a basis for organizational learning is a really critical to this mm-hmm. and um, you know there are a lot of different people working on the pieces of these ideas unfortunately, there isn't a national movement yet hopefully soon there will be well I think
1: you're right there are
2: certainly leaders and
1: organizations who are trying to help move away from you know that that shame and blame culture um, John Toussaint and fata care and his successor, Dean Gruner, as CEO. I know they're certainly trying to make that a part of their culture. Um, Gary Kaplan, as you mentioned, um, trying to create um, environments where people can raise issues and um, flag near misses and use that to drive improvement and organizational learning. Um, it's interesting, uh, maybe I can get your thoughts um, looking at a higher level aspect of this. I, I saw an interview read an interview where um, you, you talked about the idea of medical malpractice and how that structure maybe at a real high level interferes with um, healthcare improvement. Um, and he, he, I think you even advocated eliminating medical malpractice. So I was wondering if you could share, you know, elaborate on that or share some thoughts and and tie that back to the impact on really improving patient safety and quality.
2: You know, I, as, um, as I go around and talk to people about aspiring to habitual excellence one of the pushbacks that I get well there are several one pushback which you alluded to earlier is for people to say well we can never be perfect and we don't want to set goals we can't achieve you know and I found in my own early days at Alcove when people told me that about workplace safety I said to them okay if you don't want to have a goal of zero then let's go around and find out who wants to volunteer to be hurt to make sure we reach our goal of somebody being hurt. You know, and and, and it's so ridiculous on its face. It's equivalent to people saying, oh, well, you know, the, the, there's no way that we can eliminate all the infections in the hospital. It's a lie. You know, it, it is simply not true. And and to aspire to less than zero is to excuse every single one that happens rather than learning from them and figuring out a way to introduce practices that will take away the possibility. So in the in the secondary case of medical malpractice, people say, oh my God, if we start reporting things gone wrong, we're creating a roadmap for the lawyers to come and attack us with our own information. So I believe there is a legitimate answer to that, and, and it rests in this observation: If you go around the country and you try to find people who are malevolent malfactors who are intentionally hurting people, I would submit to you, except with criminally insane people, you can't find any examples of that. Now, is it true that people do get hurt and 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 uh, in the in the in the practice of medicine in the United States? The answer is yes. Alright, so we need to combine, combine that observation. People do get hurt with the idea that the way to avoid people getting hurt by the same circu- set of circumstances over and over again is to learn from everything gone wrong. And in order to do that, we need to have a transparent system where everything gone wrong is observed, documented, and shared on a real-time basis every day in every healthcare giving institution and in order to take away the excuse that they can't have transparency because of the threat of lawsuits, we should abandon what was already a bad notion of medical malpractice and in its place create a system where when an individual is injured as a consequence of a medical intervention, we simply turn the case over to a board of experts to judge the economic loss associated with the injury and award that individual that economic loss without any lawyers involved and without any trying to hide the fact that an individual was injured so that we can insist on transparency and there won't be an economic cost associated to the individual events. I I, I believe that this is sufficiently worthy, that we ought to pay for it out of the general revenue stream of the federal government. And I I would be willing to accept a, a step back from that with the health and medical care system producing a standby fund to service the economic cost of things on wrong. And I honestly believe in a fairly short period of time, the cost would be sufficiently insignificant. It wouldn't matter.
1: The, the idea being that um, that approach to, you know, compensating those who are wronged but also driving improvement would help prevent future cases of harm and, and reduce costs uh, in in the future in a far more effective way than the current system does. Uh, exa-
2: exactly right. In, in fact, I've been advocating to the government that they should implement a system where every caregiving institution in the nation is required to hook up to the Internet at 8 o'clock in the morning, local time, wherever you are, and report on the Internet every instance of a newly identified patient Acquired infection, every case of a patient fall, and every case of a medication error. And I think the availability of that data, first of all, would be shocking to the people. And secondly, I think it would spur action to bring the numbers down quickly. So, right now, by best estimates, there are 300 million medication errors in this country every day so if you can imagine if we could cause people to report medication errors on a 24 hour cycle basis we would have on average 800,000 reports of medication errors every day mm-hmm. which is the truth and which i believe would cause the caregiving institutions to put their shoulder to the wheel of Continuous learning, continuous improvement, and we would stop this madness.
1: Well, I, I, I'm really, I'm very appreciative for your leadership on on, on this important issue, uh, Mr. O'Neill. Um, as, a, as a final th- um, to wrap things up, if, if you can tell the listeners a little bit about the work that you're still doing um, through Value Capture Organization, and, and if you have any final thoughts, just um, share with the listeners. Maybe to try to either inspire change in their own healthcare organization or as a general public, what we can do to help inspire um, more quality and patient safety improvement.
2: You know, I have uh, an organization that's called the uh, Value Capture, and it is dedicated to these propositions I've been talking about, and they're working in a variety of uh, different medical care institutions, settings around the country. Uh, and they're also working these days with The Institute of Medicine uh, coming up on, uh, I think, August the 23rd, we have a session in Washington at the Institute of Medicine (laughs) to bring together leaders in the field to talk about creating what I call a bulletproof documentation of the size of the uh, patient improvement and cost-saving potential across the nation and so you know we're we're continuing to work on these ideas i'm also involved with uh, a number of other institutions including data care which i mentioned in uh, wisconsin uh because john toussaint has uh, demonstrated he not only believes in these ideas he brought them into practice and uh, his successor is uh, continuing to work in wisconsin you know one hope i would have is that uh the congressman from his his state, who's become fairly famous for advocating financial medicine for health and medical care, uh, would go to Theta Care, which exists in his own state, and and see the real way that we should deal with health and medical care, instead of the financial engineering uh, Paul Ryan is advocating these days in Washington.
1: And um, do, do you have any final thoughts on you know how um, how others can help um, create or in, inspire the sort of leadership that John Toussaint and others um, have have had uh, to help improve patient safety and healthcare? You know, uh, I, would, I, thought, would urge, we, I would I we'll,
2: would I would urge board of directors of health and medical care institutions, hospitals and nursing homes, to work with their leader to assure the day-to-day operational leader that they're supportive of the idea of uh, establishing theoretical limit goals for everything that goes on in their institutions. Because I think if board of directors urge the people who are day-to-day responsible for care delivery, it might provide a stiffening of the backbone of people who are supposed to Lead institutions to habitual excellence.
1: Well, thank you again, uh, Mr. O'Neill, for um, taking time to share um, some of your thoughts and, and talk about your experiences on uh, this important topic of uh, improving healthcare quality and patient safety. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for
0: having me on. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about value capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.